Tuesday, May 1st. This is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Jason Moser, from Motley Fool Special Ops, Mike Olson, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Gentlemen, happy May Day. Happy May Day. Happy May Day. <laughs> uh, we've got a little bit of an executive shuffle going on at Chesapeake Energy and at Groupon. We've got some tasty news from P.F. Chang's. But let's start with May Day because uh, we have seen splashed all over the interwebs and on CNBC the old investing adage, sell in May and go away, this whole notion that the six-month period starting on May 1st, Joe, uh, you, you run it out six months, it, basically over the last 50 years, the market's essentially flat over that period. And so there are some people saying, hey, look, just sell your stocks, go enjoy your summer, and then you know, in the fall, we'll revisit everything. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of great little old rules like that that yep. at different points in time have shown statistical significance. Uh, the Foolish Four which I think people here would remember. There was a lot of data, historical data, to back that up. Way back in the day? Yeah, but what you see is that eventually these you know, these abnormalities in the market get washed away because people become aware of them. Like the January effect was a real thing for a long time, but people, it became so popular that it got washed away. No, I don't think you should just <laughs> sell your stocks and walk away. I do love the idea of not watching your stocks every day. Uh, you shouldn't be obsessing over them, but it's silly to just walk away from the stock market and try and time it based on the calendar. That's ridiculous. Yeah, don't obsess on them. Let us obsess on them. Listen to market foolery. That's we'll, what we're here for. That's why we're right? here. Mike I Olson? Mean, I, I think it's kind of a funny thing because as soon as you start to believe an effect like this exists, it becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. The reality, though, is you need to ask yourself the question, has anything fundamentally changed about the prospects of a given company? the economy or the world at large just because we've entered the six-month period starting May 1st? And I might posit no. <laughs> <laughs> Although, Jason, you were saying before we started taping, you're, you're hoping that some people do buy into this. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, to me, this is just another one of those old saws. And Mike's right. It's just like a run on a bank. I mean, if you, tell, if you talk about it enough, eventually, you know, it's going to happen. And uh, what that statement implies then is that prices are somewhat low somewhere, which means there are deals to be had, which means that uh, if you have any kind of a long-term uh, outlook on investing like we tend to do here, then you should be looking at, at buying, I think, in May, in June, and July, and every month out of the year, Chris. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to uh, specific companies. Shares of Chesapeake Energy up 8% this morning after the company announced CEO Aubrey McClendon will give up his chairmanship of the board of directors. He will also be ending early the founder well participation program that we and frankly others made fun of uh, but just to be clear Mike Olson uh, the program which enabled him to essentially take out personal loans uh, was going to end December 31st 2015 he's going to end it early June 30th 2014 Looking so like a good guy exactly so he only gets two years to dabble with that program as opposed to three and a half. Yeah, very nice. Um, <laughs> no self-interest there. I mean, I think this is a relative positive in that the first step to recovery is acknowledging that you have a problem. It reduces the, <laughs> it kind of reduces the appearance or the perception of nepotism that, that this whole uh, company or structure is kind of this big self-dealing mechanism. I think on the, on the high level, you know, with respect to whether or not you trust McClendon and management, their approach to risk-taking where you know, McClendon has kind of been the classic wildcatter in the, the oil and gas sphere. Um, if you're a prospective investor, you know, 
your opinion really doesn't change. I've been of the opinion for a long time that governance is not good at this company. You do not invest for management, but that it is cheap enough on the basis of its assets that, you know, you can make money at some point. Uh, Pete Miller, who is the lead independent director on the board at Chesapeake, and he's also the CEO of National Oil Well Varco, said, uh, Joe, he said, this should send a positive signal to the market and improve shareholder value. You agree with that? You think this is a sign of progress? Yeah, I think so. Corporate governance there is still wobbly, but this is a step in the right direction because Aubrey is no longer in control of the company. Now, he is still the face of it in a way, but insiders own less than 1% of the stock, so it's not like he has a voting control of the business anymore. And over time, right now, he's still the alpha dog there, but you're going to see that grip start to slip away as he steps away from the chairman's role and he's evaluated on a more objective basis. So we hope. So where um, where do things have to go from here in terms of the corporate governance of this company for you guys to feel like you just feel a, they've they've really gotten the message they're doing a lot of uh, doing it a lot better. Does McClendon no longer be need to be the CEO of the company um, or is there something else that they can do to sort of go in the step of good corporate governance? So I think the thing that that has been a consistent sort of tick or itch for me with this company is their inability to chart a consistent strategy. McClendon is undoubtedly brilliant. He's acquired an excellent collection of assets. They're very low cost. They have great potential. However, the capital structure, the amount of debt has basically left it, and, and, and the extent to which he changes course on it, has left it so that investors don't really know what to think about him, the strategy he's going to chart, and where the shares are going to go or what it'll do tomorrow. Joe, we'll just end on the stock. What do you think of the valuation? Obviously, it's up today. You had said recently it was it was getting cheap enough that you were starting to look at it. What do you think of the valuation now? I still think it's interesting. It's ugly, and there are all sorts of things I could throw out about it that are concerns, but I do like the long-term plan of trying to rationalize all these great undervalued assets they've got, and assuming that Aubrey doesn't blow it all up. Everything should be working out well enough. And I think it's pretty interesting. We will just wait for the proverbial next shoe to drop. Groupon announced it is bringing in two new members for the board of directors. Joining the board are Daniel Henry, the co-CFO of American Express, and Robert Bass from the consulting firm Deloitte. Uh, Both those guys are going on the audit committee. Leaving the board of directors are venture capitalist Kevin Efrusi. And a gentleman you may have heard of, Howard Schultz from Starbucks. Jason, it was just over a year ago that Howard Schultz was named to the board of directors. Here it is, 16 months later, he's leaving. What does this say to you? Uh, so I guess I, you know, I've been on record. I think ever since the IPO with this company, that I'm just not a big fan of it. And and the IPO, you know, you have those IPOs like Google that have just done nothing but take off ever since. And you look at an IPO like Groupon, which has really done nothing but mess the bed ever since. <laughs> and I mean, you know, today's share price at ten dollars and seventy five cents or so, it's really creeping down close to actually that number where the the six billion dollar number that Google offered them, uh, what maybe two years ago or so. I'll bet you that. <laughs> if they could do it over again and, and maybe take that offer from Google uh, and avoid all of this headline uh, heartache and all these problems, they, they actually might consider it. That said, you know, you look at Groupon now and think, well, now it is maybe getting a little bit interesting in the sense that is it cheap enough now to where you know the stock price represents some type of value? I think when you look at someone like Howard Schultz, you know, they say there wasn't any type of he wasn't leaving because of any problems or or 
you know, animosity or any issues going on with the company. Yeah, I but he, he, wasn't, though, he wasn't leaving because things were right. awesome. I, I mean, he's not walking out like saying, hey, everything's done here and my work is finished. I mean, I think that he probably looks at, looks at this and thinks, I've got bigger fish to fry. He serves on another four or five boards as it is, and he's currently, you know, running – the number one coffee maker in the world that is is really looking to expand its global presence over the course of the next decade plus. So his plate's full anyway, and I'm sure he probably doesn't have much time for, for what's going on with Groupon right now. And Joe, what do you think? I mean, is this one of these companies, we've talked before about uh, barriers to entry um, in any given business, and certainly in Groupon's business, there aren't a lot of, uh, or frankly, really any barriers to entry. Um, is this a company that when you look at the stock, part of your thesis increasingly is that it gets low enough in value that it becomes a buyout candidate for a, you know someone like Google? I don't think so, because what you see with these high flyers is ultimately they don't have a lot in terms of earnings when they come back down. So let's say the business does start to unwind and they lose a lot of traction. That's not really going to be very attractive to anyone. So just like uh, Research in Motion, for example, a reason it hasn't been an obvious takeout yet is that no one wants to buy a dying franchise. And that's essentially what you're looking at. I mean, you're not looking at that with Groupon today. I shouldn't say that. It's still growing like gangbusters. But there is so much competition, and they're losing traction in their core markets already. So there's already signs of deterioration there. And you're looking at something with research and emotion where it may not necessarily be a buyout candidate, but you may see that company sell its parts off over the course of, of the next year or two because there are parts of the company that would probably be wor- worth more than the whole. Groupon, that's just not the case. And I mean, you look at something like Living Social, that's really just as unprofitable as Groupon is. I mean, that's just a tough space to get in. There are no barriers to entry, really, no moat whatsoever. And I, and I would still argue that as the economy improves, there's more and more incentive, or there's less and less incentive for people to just continue to go out there and try to find the best deal on Groupon, uh, you know, and and less incentive for vendors to really try to advertise their products and services on Groupon as well. Mike, what do you think? Right. Well, I mean, I think, (laughs) A, it's pretty interesting that Schultz is leaving immediately and not waiting a month as the other director is, and B, in the context of the directors being added, you know, these guys have had kind of a funny run with their accounting metrics, and so that's a relative positive. You're saying Groupon. Yes. You, re- you remember when they filed their registration statement, they had something like an adjusted revenue number, which was actually supposed to be profits. I, I say that somewhat euphemistically, but the point here is that this doesn't really change anything about the business. I mean, as these guys have said, they're very nebulous competitive advantages, if any. And so, you know, when you ask yourself the question, what is this company's earnings power and what is the price I'd like to buy it at? I don't think you can really have a good opinion here. Shares of P.F. Chang's China Bistro up 30% this morning on news, not of earnings, but rather that the company is being taken private. Um, Mike? Yeah. You were saying before we were taping this, you know, this makes sense. This is kind of a, a classic page out of the private equity playbook. This reminds me a lot of an investment I made in Outback uh, several years ago. The steakhouse? The steakhouse. Yes, they were also taken private. They'll be coming public again. And there are some some obvious similarities here. When you compare this to like a cheesecake or a cheesecake factory or something like, their margins are substantially lower. They have lower sales productivity and returns. They, but they have an established concept that's selling very cheap. And if you're a private equity firm, they have low debt on the balance sheet. You can take a private. You can make some operational improvements. At 10 times cash flow, you're not paying a lot for that risk. Lever it up a lot. You can make a good return on that. 
Jim, what do you think? Yeah, I think the private equity will walk in there and fire the assistant managers, shrink the <laughs> portion sizes, and give out fewer fortune cookies. And that's exactly the kind of thing you'll see in these deals. And Mike's right. They're going to trim down. They're going to whittle it. They're going to cut as many costs as they can, get it lean, and then take it public again in a few years, get a nice multiple on it. And you know, the suckers who buy it will have bought a business that was underinvested in for years. When is Outback Steakhouse set to IPO? Because the notion that I could buy shares of the Bloomin' Onion – uh, you know, I might be, I might be up for that. Sounds you know, enticing, Chris, but don't fall for it. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't fall for it. I mean, in the end, restaurants are basically places where capital goes to die. Having an established concept is a nice thing, and that you have brand name recognition and that brings traffic through. But this is a very difficult business, and when you have a business which is cyclical, which has high capital intensity, and also, oh wait, has a lot of debt, which Outback will when it comes public. That's not really a winning proposition. You want to buy that super cheap if you're going to. Are there other companies, uh, if you look out through the rest of 2012, are there other companies out there that you think either will be taken private or rather should be taken private? What do you think? Yeah, anytime you, This is a space that you see a lot of those. Retail and restaurants are pretty common. Anytime you start to see a stock selling around tangible book value or less, that's a sign that he could be a really good takeout candidate for a private equity firm who's got the experience and patience to come in, roll some heads, and monetize assets. So Radio Shack, for example, has recently been selling for around uh, tangible book. And, you know, I wouldn't touch it. The Shack? Yeah, I wouldn't touch it as a minority investor. But if I was a private equity guy and I could swallow up the whole thing, that's a different story. And you might be able to bring out some value. Jason? That's funny. Radio Shack's a good one. I like that. I was uh, thinking the same thing. I, I just think Groupon needs to go private. They need, to, they need to just get out of this game. They're no good at it. Really? Groupon needs to go back <laughs> private. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Little, no, it's not going to, but they should. A <laughs> little, little free advice for CEO Andrew Mason. You're welcome, Andrew. Jason Moser, Joe Mager, Mike Olson. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Good as to be a, here. Uh, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.